Hello, and welcome back to Scuttlebutt. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hey. And Will. Howdy. And today we are continuing in week, we're going into week three of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we just so happen to have a relevant interview about Taiwan that we are excited to queue up for you guys today. Uh, but first, uh, are we surprised about where Ukraine has been going? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, when we first, when we dropped that sort of ad hoc episode, I had all the fears in the world that by the time that the episode aired, that things would have been completely different, that, you know, we would be talking about a Ukraine government in exile um, and that, you know, we would be piling forces on Poland and Lithuania and Estonia. Yeah, um, I think I saw the over-under, that we should be ever gambling on this, of Kiev falling being about seven days, and I definitely was hitting that under hard. Yeah, it um, didn't look good, but no. – and I think – and so w when you talk about the relevance of this episode, it doesn't seem like the two talking about, you know, sitting down with a, 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 a Taiwan straight expert would have much relevance on what's going on in Ukraine. But, you know, Dr. Hunziker, I think, really does a great job of presenting strategy – Mm -hmm. um, as an overarching theme. And I think what we're seeing is that dynamic play out between what the U how the Ukrainians are able to maximize what they have at their disposal yeah. uh, vice what Taiwan seems to envision they're going to need uh, to uh, deter and then eventually fight uh, a cross-strait battle with China. Yeah, they're they're very, I think, more comparable than you would see um, just by looking at the map of the situation. I mean, it, the, you have two revisionist powers, China and Russia, trying to exert influence over uh, regions of the world that they view traditionally as theirs, over people and culture, although not similar, uh, though are, are similar, are not the same necessarily, and they view the situation differently. And the revisionist powers are are highly, you know, technical and capable military forces fighting against, um, uh, potentially or actively fighting or or in a situation with Taiwan potentially fighting against what we would view as traditionally weaker and smaller militaries, and so you have those uh, some, uh comparing up um the same we we see um what I guess we will talk about in the Hunziker documentary where whereas Taiwan is looking at trying to invest heavily in like the big industrial um you know using using missiles and, and the tanks, next generation next generation yeah, equipment yeah ukraine is almost in in some respects gone the other way where they're um you know you saw them arming their civilians and and just issuing a lot of handheld you know javelins and other sort of rockets to to take on the heavier tech of of the russians and what we see i guess it, we'll see in the interview is um, Ukraine is almost making the case for Dr. Hunziker and how they're fighting the war, being like, if you want to take on a major power that is highly more advanced than you, here's how you can do it. And Ukraine is the case study for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, without calling anybody out, you know, if you're going to spend billions of dollars on the shiniest piece of gear, but then your runways are going to be blown up within the first 24 hours, you've basically said, hey, our new shiny, we'll just call it F-35, um, you know, 
you're now part of the Philippine military because that's the only place you can yep. land. Um, and so if they even make it off the runway, mm-hmm. um, and you got to imagine that, I mean, as for those veterans who are listening, no, like you prioritize your target list, a, you know, multi-billion dollar next generation aircraft is very high on that priority target list. And so, yeah, it's probably not going to see a whole lot of actual time helping what you're doing, but what you surely can do is create this quagmire where you just bog down this really lumbering, clunky force that, quite frankly, doesn't have a lot of actual combat experience. Yeah, that's kind of... China doesn't have, like... I'm trying to think. They've, like, dabbled their toes in some suppression recently, but they don't really have a lot of, like... They've been doing... Force-on-force combat. Their force projection has come in that soft soft projection. Mm -hmm. They've been doing, uh, you know... Uh, infrastructure building. They've been doing some humanitarian assistance, uh, but they have done almost no counterinsurgency that I can think of, and they certainly haven't done anything conventional. And so for all of the ills of our long war is you've got generations upon generations of people who have experience, not just on the front line, but supporting Mm -hmm. Uh, combat, which we're seeing the Russians fail at time and time again, is that combat service yeah. support. Well, Ukraine had mm-hmm. the Russian playbook in hand. Like, they were part of Russia <laughs> when their say, playbook yeah. was written. Yeah, but there's so. some that were <laughs> quite literally yeah. indoctrinated yeah. on the playbook. So they knew in advance what they probably needed. Now, being able to strike into Russia might have been good for them to have. Um, both of these wars, hypothetically with Taiwan, of course, um, Figured to be fully defensive. Like I don't see how Taiwan could possibly strike back at China. They've got um, they've got some stuff. I mean, it's only 125 miles, I think, across the strait mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, and you can like hit, like you can reach, but you can't go. You know what I mean? Like, well, and and, and you'll you'll actually hear Dr. Hunziker talk about this uh, in the interview. But I mean, do you want? Because the one thing that Ukrainians got going for them right now, and they're very, very, very smart at winning this I.O. campaign, is is that they're publishing videos of them humanitarily treating the POWs mm-hmm. that they're getting from the Russian side. Mm-hmm. And while so, they're hitting, while Russians are hitting maternity hospitals, right, exactly. evacuation yeah. so routes. That, I mean, stark yeah. juxtaposition on, hey, these are the quote-unquote good guys, and then he's the, clearly the quote-unquote bad guys. And so if you were Taiwan, if you're just going to sort of launch, start launching rockets into China, you may not have that, um, that same level of international support then all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, it's a pretty quick way to lose the moral high ground. Right, right, exactly. And so, yes, they have them. Would it really be effective, or would you actually galvanize mm-hmm. the dragon? Yeah. You know, we, whereas, you know, we, we, we clear, we've seen throughout the past probably decade that there's a lot of dissent within China with their current regime. I mean, it's almost an annual thing that Hong Kong puts on a massive demonstration mm-hmm. that shuts down the city. Uh, and then obviously there's other areas where, you know, people aren't quite so happy with what Beijing's got going on. And so mm-hmm. you start lobbing rockets, though. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't even – they could be military targets, but we see how the propaganda war is. Oh, that military yeah. target turns into a you know, yeah. a baby factory, and then all of a sudden everybody is okay with you know, escalation. A baby, a baby and I'm factory. Looking at what's across <laughs> the, I'm looking at what's across the Taiwan Strait there, and that's not like 
China's mega cities. It doesn't so have they don't to really, be. They don't really have mm-hmm. much to swing at. Yeah, there. such an interesting yeah. thing that I've been seeing is the just the insane level of. So whereas Ukraine is winning the the gray zone battle internationally, Russia is dominating it within their own borders. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, they have Ukrainian or Russians calling their, you know, Russians in Ukraine calling back to their family and telling them, hey, you know, we're getting bombed. And like the family members are like, not happening. It's not like, I don't, what you're talking about is a complete fallacy. We're seeing it on the news. Yeah. Our guys are just there doing humanitarian. You're just being coerced into saying things because the NATO Nazis are on to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy. Um, uh, and, you know, he shut down TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Well, he censored them, and then they all shut themselves down. Yeah. It's kind of a well, Yeah, I guess it, yeah. yeah. But the only only information source right now is state-run mm-hmm. media, Russia. And or the hacktivists trying to push stuff in. Right. Yeah. But now, who knows China being – so, like, it, it's interesting to think about this for China because, obviously, they're on the forefront of so much of – this sort of thing, but that they also have a ton of maligning actors who are also just as good within their borders as well. And mm-hmm. so would they be able to control it as well? Would they have the same? I mean, we're seeing their playbook. You know, I think we talked about it in our last episode with uh, Colonel Woodbridge. It's like we have the real benefit now since we're not actively participating to really be the NFL scouts at the Combine with our clipboards mm-hmm. taking notes, but so is everybody else. And another reason why I think this interview is so relevant is because if you don't think that China isn't, like, fully breaking down, mm-hmm. like, you know, Troy Aikman, uh, you know, doing his analysis of every play, like, they've got the thing up. There's X's and arrows and mm-hmm. zeros and, you know, stuff. They're yeah. analyzing this thing like crazy. Especially because, because, yeah, like, Ukraine is, like, leaning against NATO. Like, NATO is, like, hugging it. It's not in NATO, but, like, it's there. It mm-hmm. shares borders. Taiwan has no borders with any allies. So, where they're taking their notes, state. yeah, there, it would be, like, they'd be like, well, NATO's not doing anything in Ukraine. They're touching Ukraine. Right. So geographically, no. But, I mean, clearly Australia is very concerned. Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, you know, obviously the Philippines. Philippines, Indonesia is concerned. Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Even to a certain extent, South Korea, because, mm-hmm. you know, things tend to, you know, dominoes tend to yep. fall, right? And yeah. so um, there are, but, yeah, geographically, it's not nearly um, yeah. as uh, convenient. Is mm-hmm. uh, you know we'll just mass people within a neighboring country. Yeah, you've got yeah. hundreds of miles of yeah. ocean and stuff. So yeah, thousands also, of miles from their s- supply, like from Australia. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also just curious to see how much the Taiwanese government's paying attention, and if the right people are paying attention to to how yeah. to how to to counter a major power in this in the very similar situation. Yeah. yeah. Well, me sitting in Virginia trying to figure out what Taiwan is actually doing in anticipation of China becoming the bully. It seems like they are like anticipating the need for tunnels because Taiwan is mountainous, right? There's a big mountain range kind of right down the middle of it. Yeah. So they're kind of, it seems like they're trying to they're for working on bunkering down. Well, they've also got the issue. I think they have either one or two nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. There, so I mean, the same sort of thing as like Chernobyl. Yeah. Um, but you know, another benefit that, well, you know, Europe has so many different confederations and unions and yeah, uh, treaty organizations. 
there really isn't a f- large standing one. I think there's AUKUS, Australian, UK, US. Mm-hmm. Um, France isn't happy with them right now. Right. And then I think there's what, uh, Asia, the oh a a s e a n yeah, yeah. Asian, mm-hmm. but that's an economic group. Obviously, China is a major part of it. So, you know, yeah. whereas Ukraine maybe they can't rely on NATO, they could clearly rely on the UN and uh, EU mm-hmm. as more has more leveraging their leverage power. I don't I don't know if you're gonna get the same. It's like us and Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, with Japan filling and, in. And Indonesia to an extent. To an extent. Like, we're not allies with Indonesia, but they are wary of what China does to their trade. And Philippines, And what they do to the Uyghurs. Too. So. Yeah, 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 good call. That's a good point. Anyhow, yeah, it, it, <laughs> Taiwan, in many respects, is very much an island um, mm-hmm. in this. So, yeah, I hope, I hope that they are paying a lot of attention yeah. to what's going on. Yeah. Uh, but for uh, to your point, though, I mean, us sitting here in Virginia uh, isn't the place to be. But we brought somebody in. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. is the place to be? And he's yeah, gonna, that is a fantastic. It, yeah, he's gonna back. learn yeah. us something. He's gonna learn us something. Yeah, let's do some learning, you guys. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys on the flip. Bye. Bye. Well, welcome Good. everyone. Thank you uh, again for joining us uh, in another uh, segment of our Amphibiosity series. Uh, I'm here with William. Hello. And again, we have our uh, second recurring guest, uh, Dr. Michael Hunziker. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me again. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, because of your expertise and the rapidity at which we seem to want to make changes in policy, you are a key member of, uh, we're gonna, just going to put you on the payroll or something, because <laughs> I guarantee we're going to need you back on the show uh, again. So, Well, uh, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity after the last podcast, you know, my book sales jumped by like 10%, which I mean, technically means I sold like one book, but still I appreciate <laughs> it. And I think it's a it's a win-win relationship here for us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and, and I know uh, William's uh, going through your book now. And for those who missed the um, missed the first episode with Dr. Hunziker, his book is Dying to Learn. It's a wonderful read, and it juxtaposes two eras in military history that you wouldn't think coincide, and that's uh, World War One and and the lessons. We can learn now from the lessons learned uh, in in the the first great war. So, again, thank you so much for being. But we are going to shift gears a uh, big time here and talk amphibiosity and what that means for the Marine Corps and if it's even a thing anymore and if it if it even really needs to be. Uh, but before we get into the uh, the steak and potatoes of this thing, if you wouldn't mind, again for those who may have missed the first episode. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit of, uh, you know, being a veteran Marine, being a, uh, a scholar, being a, um, a professor of strategic studies at uh, George Mason, and then, you know, where you are now. Sure. Yeah, no, so happy to do just a quick 50,000 foot recap. So I'm currently an assistant professor at George Mason University, where I teach international relations, international security, and I mostly work on military learning conventional deterrence. And for the last couple of years, as I'm sure we'll talk about, I've been working a lot on cross-strait type issues. 
I came into the field actually by way of the Marine Corps. So I, I joined the Marine Corps right out of college. I did Navy ROTC at Berkeley. So I was on active duty from 2000 to 2006 as an Amtracker, serving with one of your podcast hosts as my executive <laughs> officer. And so uh, Vic and I did UDP to Okinawa in 2002, came back, recocked, immediately went back for the, not back, went to Iraq for the invasion, OIF-1, came home, was home for about eight months, went back again in 2004 for kind of OIF-2, TAC Alpha, I guess is what we were calling it then. Came back, did a couple of years of training, new AAV officers, and then made the transition out to first Civ Div where I went to graduate school and my experiences on active duty, really getting an opportunity to watch the Marine Corps wrestle with this, this learning challenge of having gone into a war that evolved quite dramatically out from under us, you know, really inspired me to get to work on the topics I did. So I spent about nine years wandering around in graduate school, writing on that topic, became my dissertation, which then became the book that Vic so kindly pitched to you all. And now I'm here. Well, on the top of, topic of learning, and, and I guess as a good sort of entry point into this conversation is, is that what is your take on the Marine Corps' learning and our adaptation? Many, and some of the guests of the show actually would argue that we've lost a little bit of our intellectual curiosity. And I know Commandant is feeling a lot of pressure, um, both from the civilian side, the, the veteran side, and then the active duty side on some of the initiatives he wants to uh, wants to enact. Is 2030 a realistic thing? Are we already too far gone? Like, so what? What's some of your take on on our ability to adapt and learn in this time period? No, so terrific set of questions. I'll, I'll maybe tackle the first couple and then we can let the conversation go where it will. First, though, I should toss out a disclaimer. You know, I, I did serve on active duty, but at this point, you know, almost 20 years ago. So I, I have to be really forthright in saying I, I'm an academic who observes these things from the sidelines. You know, at best, I can be sort of a Monday morning quarterback, but I definitely don't consider myself as being in this position to offer, you know, micro, fine, granular type critiques or to be there to say you're doing it all wrong and I've got the right answer. You know, those who are on active duty and in the reserves today, they're living, they're breathing, they're eating this stuff, they're out there simulating or on the tip of the spear and they've got real skin in the game. I sit back and, you know, I read War on the Rocks, I read the Marine Corps Gazette and I can pontificate, but you spend most of your days out there in the battlefield and the operating space. I spend most of my days in a classroom trying to remind undergraduates they should come to class and read some of the material. And so, you know, I, I, I'm an amateur at best. I think the one thing I can contribute modestly to the conversation is just bringing in kind of that contrarian mindset, which is to say most of what I do in the classroom is just argue with students and they quickly find I argue both sides of the issue. I guess in the vernacular, you just say I'm talking to myself mostly, but in doing so, you know, trying to force people to sharpen their arguments, not necessarily to imply things are wrong. And the second thing I can do is kind of I have the luxury of just reading really old stuff that People who are out there in the operating forces don't have the luxury of time to read. And so I can sometimes help to try to bring in a historical perspective that otherwise might be missing, because I'm guessing not a lot of people think that the First World War has a lot to teach us about learning in the 21st century. So with that, I guess I would start off with this observation, and I, I've seen a lot of it, not just lately, it's kind of a standard trope, both in the military and in scholars who write about the military, this, this idea that militaries are hidebound, traditional, backwards looking, sclerotic, slow to learn, and this tends to lead them into catastrophic failures. And, and I actually think this is a, 
it's a misread of history. If anything, especially, and you know, there are variations over time, but the American military and the Marine Corps in particular are actually, you know, from a historical perspective, remarkably flexible, adaptive. If anything, it strikes me sometimes there's a there's a risk of being too flexible, too adaptive, too eager to grab onto innovation, sometimes at risk of, of losing traditional capabilities. And, you know, I'm not using that to preview some critique of Force Design 2030, but I think it is important to keep in the back of our minds that maybe we shouldn't completely beat ourselves to death for being inflexible or stodgy or or backward looking. Ben Jensen, who I don't know if you've had on the podcast, maybe at some point you can, he does a lot of work. He actually found, looking back at the US Army, right, not an institution we typically associate with being dynamic and flexible, but between like 1975 and like 2020, it changed its capstone doctrine seven times. That's like a remarkable amount of flexibility for an organization that mostly we associate with kind of a conservative mindset. You gotta grab people kicking and screaming to drag them into the modern period. Okay. So I guess to that extent then, um, you know, we, to talk, I guess, doctrine and to talk about sort of immovable objects, um, <laughs> Marine Corps doctrine, uh, Marine Corps uh, MCDP-1, uh, when we're talking about the importance of an amphibious force and being a ready force, MCDP-1 says that the, the operating forces must be organized to provide forward deployed or rapidly deployable forces capable of conducting expeditionary operations in any environment. This means that in addition to maintaining their unique amphibious capability, the operating forces must maintain the capability to deploy by whatever means is appropriate to the situation. And then MCDP-1 tax zero, um, throughout the document speaks extensively about Marine Corps amphibious nature, its amphibiosity and what it means to the joint force. Um, some would say that this type of vernacular specifies an amphibious force. Others would say that it alludes more to an expeditionary force. Um, in today's tactical environment, operational environment, strategic outlook, what does that mean then to be amphibious? Yes, I mean, this is a, a terrific set of questions. Obviously, the Marine Corps is wrestling with it. Congress is wrestling with it. Scholars are wrestling with it. My take as a scholar of military history or somebody, I don't want to overstate my qualifications, as somebody who who, who dabbles in military history and, and thinks deeply about the theory of strategy and competition, which I should say is distinct from, say, the legal requirement for the Marine Corps, because right, Title 10 stipulates the Marine Corps will be an amphibious force in standing. It will be ready to conduct amphibious expeditionary operations. That said, as a scholar, you know, we can change the law from my perspective. And so what we're really trying to debate is what do we need as we enter this kind of new period or renewed period of, of great power competition, but also a period in which all kind of that other stuff didn't exactly go away, these regional contingencies and the potential for future counterinsurgency, counterterror operations. So from that perspective, you know, I think the overarching mandate is to have a flexible and expeditionary force, which is to say one that can go and fight the away game and can do so quickly. Second to that is, of course, the requirement to do so amphibiously, to be able to move from sea to shore and to fight in both environments, because that's currently a domain in which we've got a lot of water on the earth, a lot of the away games look very likely or more likely than not to be fought primarily in the littoral regions or have a strongly littoral aspect. That said, I don't think 
Marines should. I, I don't think they do, but I don't think we should necessarily anchor ourselves to the amphibious piece because the amphibious is the means and not the ends. The end state is the expeditionary, the means with which to get there, given the technologies and the vulnerabilities and the opportunities we face today would be via the water. You know, if we could conduct a thought experiment and just imagine ourselves like a hundred years in the future, somehow there's peace on earth and now we're all just competing over resources on the moon like that really crappy Brad Pitt movie last year or something that made you want to sleep. It was really depressing, but we're all fighting on the moon. In that case, if there is still a Marine Corps in standing, something tells me the domain through which we'll need to operate expeditionary really will be space. And we really won't be quibbling over whether or not we retain or lose the amphibious capability. So focus on the expeditionary, but for the time being, certainly within the time frame of the next 10, 20 years, I think water will be that means. Therefore, there will need to be this element of being able to operate from the sea to the shore and potentially even in a sustained combat environment. Yeah, for sure. Well, looking at, though, some of the recent attacks, if you will, or threats to our ability to operate and to have access, some would argue, and I don't, you know, some being the mythological some, um, <laughs> but would argue that we're already in space and to a certain extent. Um, and I, in, and I, I appreciate you mentioning that that expeditionary mindset would have to transcend because um, we're entering into a, a a fourth or even a fifth dimension of warfare now where there's no physical space being occupied, but there's very real collateral and material and personnel that are being affected. So has that then made a future projection, a, a 2030, has it made an amphibious um, I guess, uh, posture or amphibiously, amphibiously focused uh, strategic plan obsolete? So, well, first of all, I, I do agree we need to be able to counter adversaries, rivals, opponents, competitors, whatever euphemism we want to use for, for people we might fight a war with, in any domain in which we either have a vulnerability or can exploit an opportunity. That said, it does, it does strike me from the as a casual observer from the sideline that the domains are now proliferating like a gremlin in a swimming pool. I mean, it's just more domains than I can keep track of. Space, clearly, though, is, is one we need to be cognizant of. That said, historically speaking, there is always a tendency when new technologies make new opportunities available to quickly overstate both how quickly those technologies will come to maturity and like the decisive degree to which like they will overwhelm all existing measures and countermeasures. Certainly, I think by 2030, 2040, I'm no space tech geek, but it, it strikes me that no existing unclassified capability that's out there is going to render amphibious operations of any sort, either the 2040, sorry, the Force Design 2030 model or, or any other alternative model obsolete. It, yes, satellites will be able to see all sorts of things. Insofar as I'm aware, the idea of rods from God still runs into the problem. It's really expensive to get those rods up into space. So chances are we won't have a ton of those things floating around. It also strikes me, even though our amphibious forces may be visible from space, that still doesn't necessarily mean that the adversary will be able to hit our assets out at sea. And then, of course, you run into the thing that as expensive and exquisite as lineage of these capabilities are, there are also anti-space capabilities out there. And I definitely see the possibility in a high-end fight against a pure competitor that we're just going to knock each other's eyes in the sky out pretty quickly, and then we'll be kind of waging war. Right. Old school fashion. 
So from this perspective, I think amphibious warfare definitely has a place, expeditionary amphibious warfare, for the next 10, 20 years. The question, though, being the degree to which we will need to completely disaggregate and distribute those forces in order to increase their survivability, their lethality, and our ability to evade some of these eyes in the skies that could otherwise observe us. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you here in this part, I know we we talked about your your sort of academic chops, but if you wouldn't mind sort of putting on your anecdotal hat um, and if we could tap into some of your experiences. So you have a, we we, uh, talked a little bit at length about this in the previous podcast, but you're sort of an interesting case study because you ascended into the Marine Corps focusing exclusively on amphibious. I mean, you had salt water in your veins and, and throw up in the back of your throat. Uh, but then operationally, you spent the vast majority of your time on land. And then you went back and then instructed students on how to conduct amphibious operations. And so where do you or do you even see value in? And I'm not talking necessarily the equipment set, but being able to project forces over the water to conduct forcible entry operations from the sea and then to then continue operations inland. So so clarification, most of the puke was in the back of the Amtrak. I have never in all of my <laughs> operations thrown up inside the Amtrak myself. It's a it's a point of pride. But you are right. And, and again, this is kind of what inspired me to really spend my academic career looking at military learning. I spend two years on active duty preparing for amphibious operations. Then I spend two years basically fighting in the deserts of Iraq. And then I spend two years preparing officers for amphibious operations, knowing damn well, as soon as they graduate, they're going to Iraq to fight a counterinsurgency. <laughs> I am not preparing them for. And so, yeah, this really you know resonates with me. Based on those experiences, based on my, again, not the world's leading expert, but I've spent some time reading through the history of military affairs and looking at the current strategic situation. I guess my answer will be an unsatisfying one, but something along the lines of, I think it is a useful, if not necessary capability to have, even if the probability of using it is relatively small. And and by that, I mean, and I guess I should start out with my cards showing. I, All things equal, I think Force Design 2030 is moving the Marine Corps in the right direction. I think that in terms of a deterrent posture, and we should be clear here, deterrence is the goal. I've spent the last year working on this research project, interviewing experts in Japan, Australia, China, Taiwan, the United States, asking about possible conflict scenarios. And it's really crystal clear, every world in which deterrence fails is a worse world than one in which deterrence maintains. And that even includes a world in which deterrence fails and we win. Winning could actually be worse than the status quo right now. So we we need to spend everything we can and focus on our number one mission being deterrence. But that said, if deterrence does fail, I do think that is the possibility that even in a high-end fight, it won't be a short and sharp high-end fight. And we may find it useful, if not necessary, to have opportunities to exploit vulnerable flanks, vulnerable domains, vulnerable islands. And then having that ability to project power ashore and potentially fight a somewhat long-term battle would be a useful thing to have, if only in reserve. Nice, nice. And then, so... And one of the things we talk about then is we talk about deterrence. We're talking about access. Obviously, the more that you can deny access, the less viable your deterrent posture becomes. Um, does 
ensuring access require an amphibious force or does it just require an expeditionary force? So I think one of the things I really like about the direction in which the Commandant is attempting to move the Marine Corps right now is this understanding that for all the vulnerabilities we have, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, and, and let's just be honest, specifically having to deal with, with Taiwan, like of all the vulnerabilities we face, tyranny of distance, all of that, the fact that China's been modernizing, the fact that the stakes may be uneven. The fact of the matter is we have one huge advantage, which is that we are in the position of having to defend and maintain the status quo, not change it. And the, the, the logic and theory of deterrence, which is maintaining the status quo and convincing the other side not to challenge it, versus compellence, which is when you want to change the status quo, that's a much higher bar you have to surmount. That's the position that China or potential competitors would have to face or find themselves in. That because we kind of have this lower bar that plays to our advantages, and therefore I think many of the concepts that Force Design 2030 entails really play to those advantages, meaning we don't necessarily have to be able to project power, but we do have to be able to, number one, operate inside a contested environment, and then number two, be able to flip that anti-access challenge on its head, thereby just making it that much more difficult, costly, and risky for the other side to attempt to revise the status quo. And so I, I, I like those concepts and ideas. I guess, again, where I do have some concern and would certainly hope that the Marine Corps considers ways to hedge, which would be some risk of over time going all in, hyper-specializing on this one particular approach, which I think is the most important approach to maintaining deterrence, knowing that the logic of deterrence also requires that if deterrence fails, the other side thinks you could still prevail in the fight that ensues. And it strikes me that a lot of the conversation about a potential fight over a Taiwan scenario assumes the fight will be short and sharp. Mm. And I think that's possible. As a student of the First World War, I also think it's possible it goes the other way. And right. that what happens is both sides quickly run out of Schlitz. We expend all remaining rounds of our high-end precision stuff. We both realize our noses have been bloodied. And although the political leaders of each side hope that by kind of delivering that punch to the other side will shock them into conceding, really what that does is rally the other side and it causes it to redouble. And so you have this pause as each side rebuilds and reconstitutes its forces, and then we go at it again. And, you know, hopefully this thing doesn't escalate to the nuclear threshold. That's an entire different set of challenges we would need to wrestle with and take very seriously. But if this thing ends up dragging on, then I think we are in the world where just being able to deny may not be sufficient and having that capacity to escalate elsewhere, to grab things and hold them at risk in other parts of the region may become desirable, or at the very least our political leaders might want to have that set of options on the table. And it would be very unfortunate if the Marine Corps reached a point where it had basically let that completely atrophy, amphibious expeditionary operations, sustained combat ashore, and they couldn't reach into that toolkit or would have to reach into that toolkit and then relearn in the middle of the fighting. That would, we could do it, you could do it, but it would be, I think, unnecessarily costly versus, say, maintaining some of that capacity in the reserve, which is certainly more costly than just letting it completely mothball, but might allow you to reconstitute it faster than you, you otherwise could. Do you think that issue of um, the idea that the next conflict could be over relatively quickly, do you think that is more of like a, a civilian mindset or military mindset or both? Or do you feel like there's maybe like detractors on either side who view it as, as guaranteed maybe potentially long-term? I mean, I have to be honest, I spend most of my time talking to civilian side leaders, scholars, both in you know, the United States and, and overseas. And so 
I, I do get the feeling that certainly that narrative is more prevalent than I would otherwise be comfortable with on the civilian side. My intuition tells me I think military leaders, especially those who spent 20 years fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, maybe they're a little bit more skeptical. I think many of us lived through the invasion of Iraq and again, we remember what new technologies were supposed to enable us to do quickly and recognize that there are just a chance these things go sideways on you. And so my guess is on the military side, there's this kind of recognition of needing to be prepared for plan B and plan C. And again, I, I think all things equal, moving the Marine Corps in the direction of distributed operations of fighting inside contested environments, of focusing on ways to flip the anti-access challenge on its head, of moving towards unmanned, long-range, cheap, distributed capabilities. It's the right way to go. I just, with everything, because, you know, Depeche Mode is the greatest group in all of history. Everything, it's all about getting the balance right. And I do worry, sometimes when you look at the history of innovation and change, what starts out as a relatively, you know, Modest idea can over time become a caricature of itself as people drink the Kool-Aid and you get these coalitions and people realize the bandwagon is leaving the station. I got to get on this thing that then you can start to see things swing too far the other way in 5, 10, 15 years down the road. What began is that, hey, let's as a commonsensical hedge in the direction of the future of likely warfare to maintain deterrence then becomes like this is the end all be all people worshiping the altar of, you know, only distributed operations only for short period fights and that that could become a problem. I'm not saying it will happen, but certainly something, you know, as a scholar, I would like to see the Marine Corps making sure it's kind of constantly doing that 360 red selling, making sure it's on guard against that potential risk. Yeah, I was I had a similar question about what precedent uh, would these folks who think it's going to be a short, um, you know, uh, decisive conflict, because other than Persian Gulf in the 90s, I mean, hell, we couldn't even do. We couldn't even hand out humanitarian rations in Somalia without that beginning protracted. Um, and so yet in a very short period in the Iraq war, um, did we see something that sort of looked like a short, quick sort of thing. So I, I wonder where do some of these folks, what precedent are they citing? Or are we just sort of getting caught up in a little bit of our American exceptionalism? Or just over-reliance on technology, potentially. I, I th it seems to be some combination of these things. I think there tends to be a sense that some of our opponents are relatively fragile regimes standing on top of people who aren't going to be willing to be in it for the long haul. And so therefore, in a conflict of this nature where the costs are much higher than the leaders are almost certainly selling on their people, that once those costs become known, then the people agitate against their leaders and sue for peace or you know the regime collapses, right. all of which are possible. And then there's this argument about the just deeply interdependent nature of the current international system, our trade, and so on and so forth, and the fact that, you know, a prolonged conflict of this nature, <laughs> that trade comes to an immediate stop. We just saw, you know, what a pandemic did to global right. trade. So these ideas that all these things create these mutual vulnerabilities, societies will therefore, you know, a sharp, nasty fight, and then they'll come to their senses. Or this idea that if we're not careful, the other side could grab, pull off a fait accompli, you know, grab something so quickly and the war is over, not quickly because we defeated them, but quickly because they grabbed it before we could really arrive yeah. in decisive numbers. And so through either of those pathways, there's this, this sense. But again, this is not the first time in history you point to the Gulf War as a counterexample, but 2003 or certainly 1914, if you read a lot of the stuff before the First World War, there was this sense the world or Europe had become deeply interdependent. These new regimes were increasingly fragile. 
and that combination of factors meant that the war had to be over quickly, otherwise it would lead to widespread social revolution and collapse. Of course, oftentimes when you get punched in the face, you don't collapse. It just pisses you off even more. That seems to be what happened in Europe. And I worry that with two fairly nationalistic regimes around the world, you know, competing with each other, as we start to suffer those losses, really we'll see people rally to the flag instead of rallying against it. Okay. Well, and I guess that's a, that's a great, I guess, segue into, so now, we, you know, we talked to some of these broader concepts, so let's sort of dial it in and uh, or zero it in on the area that is of most concern, uh, I think, to most of our listeners and is a, an area uh, that you've focused uh, a, a great deal of your time on. And so China is a pacing threat. Um, interesting choice of words. I think that terminology has become solidified after a few iterations of giving it a go. But the commandant explained um, that as he explained a pacing threat as maintaining overmatch and deterrence. Not that he necessarily expects to come into direct conflict with a pacing threat, read China. Um, but w- you having, s- you studying the uh, the environment and the and the, the habits of the, the Taiwan Strait, like what does it mean to you when you hear Mil, uh, service leaders talk about China as a pacing threat? Well, so, so as someone who has spent a, a fair amount of time looking at Taiwan's strategic, operational, and tactical challenges, I, I'm certainly heartened to hear, you know, the National Command Authority, National Defense Strategy, talk about China as the pacing threat, because I, I do think Taiwan is an extremely volatile flashpoint. Seems to be that all kind of the preconditions for a great power conflict exist there. That doesn't mean war will happen, but definitely the odds are higher than I would be comfortable with. Uh, And so I think treating China and in particular the cross-strait relationship as being a a pacing threat that kind of guides how we think is is a very useful development. And again, this is why I like a lot of the things that I hear coming out of Force Design 2030. I think they are, are relatively low technological bars. You know, we're not having some pie in the sky dream of technologies we need. A lot of the things are kind of already out there. Obviously, the concepts, the doctrine, the tactics, the techniques and the procedures, those things really have to get ironed out. I also like that the Commandant clearly emphasizes the goal isn't to get it 100% right. We're not going to do that. The goal is to get it not too too wrong, to get close enough, and then understanding that, that warfare will necessarily force learning and adaptation upon us. I think those are the right mindsets. And I really do believe, and I've written quite extensively about this with regard to Taiwan's military, but by increasing the denial capabilities of our forces in theater and our ability to get those forces there quickly, we really can increase the cost and the risks Beijing would have to face in order to attack Taiwan. And I think that that gives that moment for thinking twice to be deterred, to to hopefully prevent any of this uh, from becoming real. Yeah. And so speaking of your of your, of what you've written and published, I mean, you've got articles. Um, I'll just read them off. Uh you get Taiwan wants paladins. Congress should say no. Uh, published in Defense One. Taiwan's defense plans are going off the rails. War on the Rocks, 2001. The painful but necessary next steps in the U.S.-Taiwanese relationship. War on the Rocks, 2020. Um, you cited in Michael Sweeney's article why a Taiwan conflict could go nuclear and uh, defense priorities. 
Um, you have a, uh, and then there was also a book where you recited um, the book. Uh, the, the citation is your piece, um, A Question in Time, Enhancing Taiwan's Conventional Deterrence Posture. You've even presented Tara's testimony uh, before the U.S.-China Economic and Security Re Review Commission. So, I mean, clearly, um, Taiwan is a big deal. Um, and they've gone through some changes. Uh, what looked to be promising has sort of taken a turn. You mind sort of, can you give our listeners sort of the, the 35,000 foot view on, on what it is that you're, um, some of the views you have on cross-strait relations? Sure. So speaking specifically to Taiwan's defense posture, which is most of what I've been working on, I, the overarching thrust of all of my arguments is that we need to maintain deterrence. And that deterrence is on increasingly fragile foundations, in particular because of the rapidly and dramatically shifting military balance in the Taiwan Strait between Taiwan and China. And, and with no small amount of irony, a lot of what I've been writing about what I think the Taiwanese military should do is, is very similar to what the Commandant's trying to push the Marine Corps to do. Those kind of same debates are playing out uh, in Taiwan. And by that, I mean, for a really long time, I won't go into the whole painful history of U.S.-Taiwan relations, Taiwan-China relations, but for many, many decades, Taiwan was able to rely either on an explicit U.S. security guarantee, we had a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan until the end of 1979, or, you know, after we switched recognition from Taipei to Beijing, we're able to rely on the fact that the U.S. was willing to sell Taiwan old conventional weapons, but those old conventional weapons combined with a fairly large active duty force of conscripts was able to pretty much take invasion off the table because although Taiwan didn't have many of these things, American weapons, even the old ones, were qualitatively so superior to anything that China could feel that there's just there's no, no chance that China could succeed by force of arms. Of course, you, you fast forward, the United States pivots its attention to the global wars on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then simultaneously, China, it was watching very closely with what we did in 1991, watched very closely what we did to China by deterring them in 1995 when we sent a couple of aircraft carriers. And they realized, you know, anti-access, area denial, keep America out of the fight. And then let's focus a lot of energy into reforming and modernizing our military to take advantage of the precision weapons revolution. And suddenly now you have the qualitative and the quantitative balance shifting in China's favor. So it already has this massive army. It shrinks that army, still way more massive than Taiwan, and it invests in all sorts of new capabilities such that the old weapons we've been selling the island, of which it can never afford very many, they just weren't going to be able to survive in a high-end fight. And so there have been a number of reformers in Taiwan who have been pushing the island to embrace what we refer to as an asymmetric or unconventional strategy. And it looks a heck of a lot like force design. 2030 in some respects, to say stop spending so much money on decidedly outdated and conventional platforms like F-16s, main battle tanks, big surface frigates and, and such, because you can't afford many of them and they're very vulnerable to Chinese capabilities. And because you can't afford many of them and China has lots of long range missiles, it might even be able to take a lot of your assets out in the first strike. And so instead focus on distributed operations, invest heavily in large numbers of cheap and resilient things that you can afford to lose and still throw more of them out there to create all sorts of targeting problems for the Chinese military. And then, you know, find ways to reform your reserve forces, because although Taiwan has this massive reserve force, it really doesn't have the ability to leverage them quickly to make sure they're combat ready in a crisis. 
I mean, what is it? They they only spend four months actually in uniform. Yeah. So so Taiwan has about one hundred eighty eight thousand active duty. Every Taiwanese male right now, just men are eligible for conscription. And it's a four month. It's the shortest of kind of all the major militaries in the world to do conscription. So it's four months of service. Really don't learn a whole heck of a lot. And then you you go into some reserve obligation. But the challenge is not only do you not have a lot of training in those four months, but then Taiwan doesn't even bring its reservists on to active duty for training in the way that we do. Mm. They are now making a bunch of reforms to try to move in that direction. But as we know, with any reserve force, that takes a that takes yeah. a long time to ramp up. Interesting. And so then when you look at this, so especially and I know we had this discussion. Uh, God, you were still in uniform then, I believe. Um, but you know, China at the time was really had basically reverse engineered the EFV and created something similarly, but then made thousands of them. Uh, and so you, you know, we could all and we talked about this a little bit before, but you, you know, we could argue of the 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 actual validity of some of their claims of what they, these things are capable of doing. But at the end of the day, they have a very large amphibious force that could swarm the island um, and overwhelm these things you're talking about, these coastal defenses, conventional coastal defense stuff. So an amphibious posture obviously is very important for the strait. Um, or at least for me, it seems like it would be, and having that capability, it would be a game changer. And so I guess my question is, is that am I still looking at this thing through the lens of 2009 as an Amtracker who doesn't want to let go of Amtracking? Or uh, is there something to be said for for the amphibiosity of the of the of the region? No, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far, although, Vic, we got it. We got to let go of the AVP7, man. It's older than we are. And I know we're still young and agile, but that damn thing is. Man, I still cough diesel, so stop. <laughs> I'm still deaf in one ear. But the here's the thing. I certainly China needs amphibious expeditionary capability to be able to project power across the Taiwan Strait. I think Taiwan, however, it's not saying the Taiwanese military can't walk and chew gum at the same time. It probably does need some modest expeditionary amphibious capability. And and let's be clear, it's got like nine amphib ships. It's got 54 AAVs and a 10,000 Marine strong Marine Corps. So I think it has the, the amphibious capability it needs to protect some of its outlying islands. It's got these islands that are kind of far away. And so there are some strategists who think China could try to basically bring the island to its knees by grabbing one of these offshore islands. Personally, I'm not quite sure I understand how those dominoes fall in that way. In my mind, if you lose an outlying island 90, 100 miles away, and then you basically you know, capitulate to the Chinese government, I'm not sure it's worth fighting for in the first place. I think that that's not what would happen. But there's an argument to me, maybe Taiwan has to fight over one of these outlying islands, and so it has the capability to do so. Beyond that, though, I think by moving to a genuine asymmetric, unconventional posture, focusing heavily on lots and lots of things like man pads, air defense missile systems, coastal defense cruise missiles, can allow Taiwan to exploit the natural challenges China's already going to face when it has to project power across 90 miles. I mean, let's be honest, the Germans, really powerful military in the Second World War, had a real problem just getting across the English Channel. Taiwan Strait is far more complex in operation. 
it's an island of 23 million people. I know from America's perspective, we like to think of Taiwan as small, but it's 23 million people. Occupying, subduing an island of that size would not be an easy undertaking. You couldn't do it on the light. So China would have to project lots of military power for long periods of time, a distributed posture that really focuses on sinking as many of their ships as possible and of increasing the targeting challenges to make it difficult for the Chinese military to preempt Taiwan's military capabilities via long-range missile strike, cyber strike, and assassination. That all those things, it just continues to rise or increase the bar, or what scholars we call deterrence by denial. It just makes the price you have to pay so much higher that although Beijing will always engage in saber rattling, hopefully it just convinces them behind the scenes that, you know what, let's let's continue piddling around in the gray zone. We'll, we'll do some overflights. We'll make it look like we're doing something without taking those really provocative steps that I think run a big risk of a, a major confrontation. For our so, listeners who haven't uh, read any of your articles yet, how much of a drastic change in mindset will it be from where Taiwan is now to embrace that more unconventional nature? Because I, I mean, I from from what I very know, like limited historically, um, they've always viewed themselves as like heavily conventional. Um, is that how, how, I guess like how big of a gap is that and how realistic is it? <laughs> so my most recent piece, the War on the Rocks article, you know, Taiwan's defense reforms have gone off the rails, which by the way, you know, I remember Vic, I, I gave you, your, your listeners a, a little tidbit about how to name your theory. Well, here's a tidbit when you come up with a title for an op-ed. Here's the thing is the editor ultimately gets to decide. I had a much more modest and nuanced, like, let's help Taiwan get its defense reforms back on track. And it <laughs> you know, apparently was not clickbaity enough. And so it went with the more pokey. Maybe he was listening audience. to Black Sabbath when he was looking at your piece. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. Either way, whether you go the clickbait version or the more modest version, I was attempting to pitch initially. I think the defense reforms that many Western experts and actually Taiwan's own chief of the general staff were advocating for quickly ran into the problem of a military bureaucracy and officer corps that was utterly resistant to them. And so I know at the beginning of the podcast, I said, be careful, don't fall prey to this trope or this narrative that militaries are always stodgy, hidebound, backward looking. I don't think that applies to the U.S. military. I do think it applies <laughs> to the Chinese military. And I think it's running into some serious identity issues, bureaucratic pathologies, basically any obstacle that you could potentially imagine throwing up against Force Design 2030, it's definitely something that people who want to move towards an asymmetric posture in Taiwan are running up against. And it's become a very personal fight, a very political fight. And although I think the Tsai administration, the administration office right now, I think it actually backs a lot of these controversial reforms. The fact is that because of the legacy of Taiwan's history, its development, its liberalization, President Tsai lacks a lot of the tools that, say, like a President Biden or President Trump would have to maintain civilian control over the military. And so it's not quite as easy as reforming a somewhat more politicized military in Taiwan as it would be in the case of the United States. And as Admiral Lee, who is this really reform-minded head of the Taiwanese military, he's the one who really unveiled some of these, these profoundly transformative ideas in what was known as the overall defense concept a few years back. He just ran into a brick wall of a Ministry of National Defense that quickly closed ranks, saw him as being a traitor, kind of when he leaves office, they just went back and kind of erased the entire idea. And so, you know, now you have a civilian leader that, that wants these changes, but doesn't really have mechanisms to control a military that doesn't want the changes. I think it's moving in the right direction, but my concern, the reason I'm kind of running around yelling that the sky is falling is, if we take seriously these threat assessments, you know, five to seven years, this thing could go down. If we take that seriously, 
then incremental modest change in the right direction. Maybe that works for the US Marine Corps, we have more luxury, but it's not gonna work for Taiwan. And I think the first line of deterrence has to exist on Taiwan and a willingness of the Taiwanese people to fight paired with the ability to do so in the most effective way possible to buy us time so we can get the Marines into place to flip the anti-axis. I don't think Taiwan can survive an all-out fight on its own, but I also don't think for the next five or seven years, it's a guarantee that we get there as quickly as we'd like to. And we've got to find a way to hold that door open. If Taiwan can credibly hold that door open, which I think an asymmetric, unconventional posture does a lot better than the current one, I think deterrence holds because China knows, crap, we can't get the island quickly. We can't hand the United States a fait accompli. And oh, by the way, it'll take so long. At some point, the U.S. gets in there and then we got all these nasty challenges to deal with. And so in in a, in a I guess, a, in layman's terms and, and correct me if this is overly simplistic, but what you're suggesting uh, when you use the term asymmetric strategy is, is that basically turn Taiwan into China's Afghanistan. And so it becomes so time consuming and costly, they just lose the stomach and the appetite to continue a prolonged fight. Um, and if that is an if that is an accurate analogy, I think I could see why then it doesn't necessarily get accepted by a military bureaucracy that doesn't want to have to feel like it's resorting to a guerrilla war just to survive. No, so so yes, I think that is an accurate description of kind of the extreme elements of this asymmetric argument. I, I do think. I mean, the right, there's no good analysis. People have called it a porcupine strategy. I don't like porcupine because a porcupine, once you get past the quills, it's nice and soft and mushy. And so I think a genuinely asymmetric approach to defending the island, or more importantly, deterring aggression against the island, entails that element, that final line of defense, which is a reserve force and maybe even a territorial defense force that's ready to fight every street, every corner, every building, just wage a long-term, nasty, low-grade insurgency. But I think that's the last element. On top of that, I think you still need a conventional posture, but an asymmetric conventional posture, which is to say, the hell are you gonna do with a 101 M1A2 main battle tanks or a bunch of paladins? You just can't afford enough of those things. It will be too easy to isolate those things and knock them out early in the war. What you do want, however, are a distributed arsenal of coastal defense missiles, harpoons, that can reach at least 90 miles, maybe some longer range stuff that can interdict into Chinese ports and airfields to make it difficult to mass forces and, and reinforce and resupply. You want naval mines, you want drones, you want anti-air defenses, you want man pads, so that there is this nasty conventional fight, but it's an asymmetric one, one where you're not playing to the other side's strengths, rather you're playing to your own advantages, and you're just taking an already extraordinarily difficult enterprise. And make no mistake, if you wanted to invade an island of 23 million, it would be the largest amphibious assault the world has ever seen. It would make D-Day look like, you know, junior varsity. And so that's a major barrier for China to overcome. Let's just make yeah. a barrier that much higher. And, and and to be frank, they don't have a lot of real world experience. They've been watching us do this thing and, and sort of, you know, you know, criticisms being what they are. They've seen us do this, but at the end of the day, we've been the ones doing it. They haven't necessarily. Is that correct? No, I, so I, I think this is an important piece that sometimes does get omitted from the conversation. I, I find myself sometimes in the unfortunate position of criticizing a partner. And so it, it, it makes you, you know, friends shouldn't be doing that. And I don't do that because I want to overhype 
what China could pull off. I, you know, as General Grant said, I don't, we act as though, you know, Lee could do two double somersaults and wind up here in our command post. You know, China can't do that. This is a massive undertaking. 90 miles, Taiwan Strait, it's just a nasty challenge to have to deal with. And most importantly, China's army hasn't waged a high-end conventional fight in, in decades, way longer than the U.S. military. Although our experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq may not be exactly analogous, at least at the junior level, we know what it's like to have a small unit fight. Our officers and staff and COs know what it's like to fight through friction. We're actually pretty good at decentralized operations. Our leaders are willing to make decisions. That I don't think describes the PLA on any level. And I do think they would suffer some horrible growing pains. All that said, though, the fact is there's a lot of evidence that leadership, the decision to go to war ultimately gets made with the paramount leader. Mm -hmm. And the paramount leader has been consolidating power in such a way that, you know, history, psychology, organizational studies tell us probably he is not surrounded by a bunch of no men. And if you're surrounded by yes men, men who only get there and only survive because they're telling you what you want to hear, then there is a profound risk of miscalculation. Just you don't have all the facts. You didn't want to hear them anyway. And so, again, this is why I come back to, yeah, I don't think really it would be a good idea for China to invade, even if Taiwan's posture remained unchanged. I think there's still a risk they fail. But I don't know that Beijing sees that. And so I would want to do everything in my power, given the cost of getting it wrong, to just make sure that message comes through loud and clear, even to somebody who might be as isolated in an echo chamber as yeah. the current leadership. And autocrats don't tend to consolidate power just because it feels good to have a bunch of people hanging out to hang out with, right? Like, there's usually a reason why they're doing these things. And, and I think there's there's a need to justify why you had to do those things. Like, why yeah. did you have to take away that political control? Well, it's for economic benefit, that had been long been the line in China. And increasingly, you know, those economic benefits are becoming dubious. China looks like it's trying to disentangle from the interdependent global system, which has to make you wonder why would you need to untangle or disentangle yourself? Uh, that's gonna involve a lot of economic pain. And sometimes you need to be able to therefore then justify these challenges in other ways. And And history suggests Rallying people around a problem overseas, it's a, it's a cheap strategy. I'm using air quotes that you can't see on a podcast to, to do so. <laughs> well, then it's talking about the independent nature and then joint force and, and you know, supporting coalitions. Um, the Marine Corps, uh, as you well know, has recently sidelined the AAV. Now, we've seen uh, as recently that the ACV has been... Uh, given the all all green uh, to conduct you know unrestricted waterborne operations, but you know as we're talking that five to seven year period, I don't know how many battalions of lift we're going to get out of the ACV and AAVs that have been uh, restricted to crisis and contingency operations will have it'd be to be OJT at this point. So what does that mean for cross strait relations? Well, I mean, so long as deterrence holds, absolutely nothing, which would be a good thing. But again, the Marine Corps exists. The military exists because we recognize sometimes deterrence fails and then we want to be able to have a a menu of options. And from that perspective, I mean, this is where, again, I think Force Design 2030 is moving the Marine Corps in the right direction. My only concern is making sure that there are efforts to hedge, just given the tremendous uncertainties involved and the fact that the war may not look like we thought it would look, and, and there's a recognition built into 2030 of that, but I worry over time that it, that gets missing from, from the caricatured version of it. Uh, to have this amphibious capability, 
if you want to have this amphibious capability, then you need to on some level exercise it. And I, I do worry that if you're not doing waterborne operations because they are too risky, then the first time you do them in contingency, you're you're losing people to combat, but then you're also losing people who haven't experienced this because those are very technically challenging operations. And and the fact is that tragedy that happened with the sinking of the AV happened because and, and you know, Vic, you'll recall this. We were we were warning this sort of thing would happen back in the early aughts that as you had generations of officers, NCOs, enlisted Marines who had no experience with waterborne operations, at some point we would go back to those operations, there would be a dearth of that experience, and we were going to see catastrophic accidents. And in reading through that report, which I've read cover to cover, it, it, it is, it's just a, it's a cascade of failure after failure after failure at every level of leadership. And a lot of it just seems to boil back to inexperience. Right. And you used the term earlier that I think is apropos, and that's atrophy. And as we understand amphibious operations, they atrophy just as quickly as the AAV rusts, right? I mean, you go just even a short amount of, I mean, you know, Craig Wiggers reinforced, like, you got to be in the water once a month in some form or fashion, because you're just going to forget. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wonder about this and I, I appreciate you sort of giving us that sense because you understand the nuance of, of what this means and then what it could potentially mean. What do you think it means for Taiwan? What do you, how do you feel that those who are paying attention, you know, the, the people who that is their environment, how do you feel like, like, what is Taiwan? How do they feel? What is China? What do you think they're potentially feeling when they see this? I, I mean, my my sense is that these debates that are happening inside the amphibious corner of the Marine Corps, especially the AAV community, are, are probably not signals that are making it through to Taiwan or to China. And I have to be honest, of all the things that keep me up at night with cross-strait relations and Taiwanese defense reform, like this particular issue just is it's not in the top 10. That said, you know, all things equal, I would like to see the Marine Corps doing what it, it can do, given the fiscal constraints that it faces, to hedge with capabilities rather than kind of going all in on specialization. I think this is why reserve forces exist. There are creative ways to use that. It may be different than how the Marine Corps has utilized its reserves in the past, but those options ought to be explored, both to keep that capability set from completely atrophying. You know, I having been on active duty and then working with you also in the reserves, Vic, on the Amtrak side, I'd be the first to say, you know, a reserve unit and its amphibious skills will actually faster than an active duty unit, but certainly better to have it in the reserves than not have it at all and then have to reconstitute that capability wholesale and do so under fire. I, I think the other reason I would like to see kind of a, a more deliberate attempt to hedge on some of these things to maintain capabilities, even at some modest cost that otherwise would be desirable, it seems like a low risk, let's not, let's not spend that money, we could spend it elsewhere, is the fact that, so there's this great, take a step back, there's this great research done by a, a young up and coming scholar, his name is Kendrick Quill, he's at the US Naval War College. He wrote a fabulous dissertation, I, I hope we see it as a book someday. I think that every Marine officer needs to read either the dissertation or the book or the article version when it when it comes out. In essence, here's here's his punchline. He he wants to look at innovation, but he wants to look at some of the unintended downsides of it. And what he says is sometimes we overhype innovation and its importance. We we assume that innovation equals victory, and that's really not always the case. And it leads to some misreadings of history. So for example, 
We often talk about the German Blitzkrieg in World War II as being this major innovation, and then they were able to defeat the British in North Africa because the British were tradition-bound. It's actually got it backwards. The German Blitzkrieg was itself actually just an incremental adaptation of a previous innovation. That was the innovation that happened on the Western Front. The British, however, had actually gone all in on innovation in the interwar period. And the reason the British really suffered the beginning of the North Africa campaign was because they tried this completely transformative approach of these all armored units, which actually turns out it was kind of the wrong way to have fought, especially against this German superior method, which was incremental and adaptive. And so what Kendrick finds is that he thinks military organizations are going to be most likely to innovate in ways that prove problematic for military effectiveness in periods when they face limited resources and expanding strategic demands. Mm. Because it's going to cause them to try to square the circle to find an immaculate solution through innovation that allows them to solve their problems cheaper, faster, better. And it causes them to be less skeptical of these transformative ideas than they otherwise would be, again, because they, they got to find a way with budget constraints and an increasing menu of things they have to do to do those things. And so I think that's an important reminder. I'm not saying it's destiny for the Marine Corps and Force Design 2030, but something to keep in mind, especially as these innovations start to unfold and take root, that there might be this tendency to not be as skeptical and as critical or to explore hedging options. Because really what Kendrick finds when he looks, say, at the British in North Africa, is they had this transformative innovation. They went all in. It didn't work. And so what do they have to do? While literally fighting the war, they had to go back and dust off old ideas and old ways of fighting and old <laughs> techniques. And they reached back to their playbook from the First World War. They dusted off just like the Germans did, except they had to do it under fire. Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily for us, none of those conditions exist right now. So we should be fine, right? <laughs> yeah, no, the budgets seem to be overflowing with, with plenty. And, and there's no demand. There's no demand signals anywhere else. So we're good. Exactly. Nothing to worry about here. Nothing could <laughs> possibly go wrong. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> um, well, I guess one last question. And again, uh, I really appreciate you you coming on. Uh, and I, you know, obviously want to keep this on the low side. Um, but when we start looking at the application, then we, you know, we've talked asymmetry. We've talked deterrence. We've talked about you know maintaining a capability in case it you know deterrence doesn't work. What um, where does asymmetric, and at least as we look at Taiwan, if they were to adopt and adapt into an asymmetric strategic posture, where would the strategy nest with our O plans? Are they, is there synchronicity there or are we, is this more of a delaying tactic so that we can come in and then do the thing that we're going to do? Is there any is there any synergy between what we want to do and what Taiwan needs to do? So I think that there is a potential for a lot of synergy. And in fact, in my my testimony to the Congressional Commission last year and in my most recent War on the Rocks article, I try to make that really explicit that, in fact, if the United States would like Taiwan to move in this direction on some level, probably not in the unclassified domain. So maybe it's already happening. I'm just unaware of it that we need to be clear with them how our operational plans and capabilities are going to mesh in. Because the last thing you want Taiwan to do is to take a decidedly defensive posture, one that really is only well-suited for this high-end fight, and then not show up. Or show up in a way that doesn't complement that capability, because then now they're just going to take it you know, take it in the face and, and get very little for their pain in return. And nobody wants to go fight a fool's errand. So I do think that signaling 
the ability to complement these postures is useful. I think the Marine Corps and Force Design 2030 actually are, is ideally positioned to do so. I mean, this idea of having Taiwan adopt a posture in which it's using coastal defense cruise missiles and naval mines and drones in order to impose heavy costs on an invasion fleet as it's massing, because that's going to take a long time. It's not going to happen overnight. And then moving across the Taiwan Strait and this idea that we could get Marine teams in position quickly, or I think a debate that's going to be coming down the pipeline in DC in the not too, too distant future is whether maybe they're already there, you know, forward deployment of forces and some sort of rotational basis. But having Marine forces there that can then complement those capabilities and, and let's, let's be honest, probably have better technology and, and better suited for some of those missions. But then I also think, and this is where it comes into that hedging strategy or putting capabilities in the Army, the Navy, and other elements of the Joint Force to deliver a counterpunch, to hold at risk other things elsewhere for China to show them the, the, the price that they're going to pay, hopefully to maintain deterrence or if deterrence fails again, to be able to relieve pressure on Taiwan and force China to deal with other fronts elsewhere. That's awesome. That's fascinating. I guess one last question I have, and, and I don't think we really talked much about this outside of, you know, a few beers, but where internally does I, and I know within um, the uh, the you, you discussed the military bureaucracy, but within the populace, where does their uh, I guess allegiances, for lack of a better term, but like where does their national nationalistic sort of I guess what I'm I get what I'm getting at is if China begins to saber rattle and starts the massing of forces, is China gonna or is Taiwan gonna find a unified populace that's ready to enact whatever defense or whatever posture that their military bureaucracy is outlined or they're going to start seeing some dissent and start people saying no 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 we really are chinese so here's the here's the punchline answer i i think americans tremendously underestimate the degree to which there is a unique taiwanese identity and i think the degree to which the taiwanese are willing to fight without a doubt when not, not just the, the, the sabers rattle, the Taiwanese are used to it. In fact, that's part of the challenge is there's been this looming threat of an invasion for decades. And so at some point you just, it's kind of like a pandemic. You just sort of, eh, I, screw it. What am I, I'm going to get this thing one way or another. There is, that, there is that element of complacency to be sure. But I think when the forces really start massing and the missiles potentially start flying and the cyber attacks happen, I don't think we're going to see a populace that, that breaks or that you know, 50% or 40%. Public opinion polls show there is a clear movement towards a unique Taiwanese identity. The vast majority of people, certainly under our age, see themselves as being uniquely Taiwanese. And I think this matters. I also think that for all the talk about Xi Jinping and Putin being able to, you know, do cheetah flips around us because they're so flexible, and they've really been quite ham-fisted in how they've handled a lot of issues. They've overplayed their hand. <laughs> maybe that's a bug. Maybe that's a feature. We can debate that. But things that happened in Hong Kong and with the pandemic, I mean, that has really made it clear, I think, to the Taiwanese that any Chinese offer of, hey, let's just live and let live, come back under our aegis, and we'll let you do your own thing. Nobody believes that. It's a hollow promise now. Yeah. And we've even seen there are two basic parties in Taiwan, the KMT and the DPP. The KMT has historically been seen as this kind of pro-China party. That's just not the case anymore. And even the KMT is no longer agitating for closer relations, in part because there's this sense that, you know, you can't trust China, and anything you give today, they're just going to come back and ask for more tomorrow. So I think that we can be quite optimistic that the Taiwanese people would be very willing to fight for their own defense. Most of my critiques have been aimed at the fact, though, it's kind of like Dr. Strangelove, what's the point of a doomsday machine if you don't tell the other side you have it? 
right? You need to generate the military capability before the crisis. You can't just have a lot of public opinion polls that show people would be willing to fight. You know, we've all been to the bar and somebody comes up to you and like, oh, I used to be a Marine. I was going to join the Marine Corps, but then I got a job at Goldman Sachs instead, and I like money. And so no offense to people, <laughs> Goldman Sachs money is important. We got to pay for the Marine Corps. But the point is, right, we don't need people to say they're going to join the military in a time of war. We need them to join the military and hopefully be trained in ways that will be more effective to save more lives and impose higher costs on an invader so that the invader is deterred from doing it in the first place. The worst case scenario to be in is if you were willing to fight the invader attacks and then you join the military because now we lose a lot of people we, we could have avoided. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then uh, one last for me, uh, for our civilian and military listeners, what uh, resources aside from your own articles and books would you recommend for someone who wants to educate themselves more on the, uh, the the stuff going on in Taiwan and China right now? Well, there there is a lot of stuff. I mean, there are a ton of outlets. Basically, you crack any of them open from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, foreign policy, foreign affairs, or I think if you want to get into the some of the more technical stuff, War on the Rocks, these have great resources and the stuff is just, it's coming hot and heavy these days. If you are a glutton for punishment and you really want to kind of get into some of the fine grain details, the history, the economics, the demographics and the military challenges, a, a, a scholar policymaker known as not known as his name is Richard Bush wrote an amazing book. It's called Difficult Choices, which which you know hints at some of the challenges, but it goes through, I think, in a, a great deal of detail through a lot of these elements and would be a great first thing to read if you want to immerse yourself in this material and kind of get to a near expert level pretty darn quick. Thank you. All right, man, well, this has been awesome as always. And uh, like I said, I'm hopefully the world doesn't set it up so that we have to have you back on the show a bunch of times <laughs> uh, as things start to unravel. I don't know if the, uh, if the pace of our airing could keep up with it, but Definitely look to have you back on the show, and it's this has been really great, I mean, extremely informative. So, man, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thanks again for the opportunity. Always my pleasure. Always, always, dude. And, uh, yeah, whenever, uh, hopefully we don't hit the Zeta variant, and, uh, you know, we, we still haven't had met up for that beer since the last podcast, so hopefully before we have you on again, we'll actually be able to meet in person and have that beer, man. Exactly, or at least have the beer from across the street outside your window. You pull up your blinds and we can we can toast. Yeah, we'll, we'll be bubble wrapped, of course, but at least we'll still be in the same room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, man, take it easy. Thanks, I appreciate it. All right, bye. Bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scuttlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.